is Hebrew Hits, presented by JTribeRadio.com. I'm your host, Malia, and I sit down with people who live by the motto, it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia, and today I have someone who does not need an introduction on the phone with me. Here is the one, the only, Ben Taplin. How are you doing today? How are you doing, Malia? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I'm so happy you're here on the show with me. I'm so happy we're sitting down and having this, this talk. How have you been doing uh, in quarantine? Listen, it's been a very interesting experience, but I'm definitely it, definitely adapting. And it's, it's been so far very good, actually. That's amazing. Have you been, like, learning anything new? A lot. A lot. <laughs> Catching up on a lot of things that I haven't taken care of. I've been able to learn a lot of new things, watch some interesting YouTube uh, videos. But overall, catching up with friends, it's been, it's been a great, great experience. Nothing I ever would have expected. I don't think any of us would have expected it, but like life in general, you got to take it and make the best out of it. Right, so true. Um, so we all know you from Instagram, you know, because of your pictures and on Simcha Spy, you're always going to weddings and really being Misameach, the Chassan and the Kala. It's an amazing thing that you do, by the way. So how did this all get started? Like, take me back to the beginning. What, what made you want to do this? Well, it starts uh, a little bit before that. Um, as you know, I was sick uh, since 2014. Um, I had a lung infection. Um, it's actually, it's interesting with COVID-19, everybody's starting to learn a lot about infections. And when I got sick in January of 2014, I had a lung infection that I aspirated, which means that I threw up internally, uh, went all over my lungs and subsequently put me in a coma for two and a half months. And people are like, I don't understand. How could you get, you know, an infection that could happen so quickly? And I would always tell people it's, just like getting regular pneumonia and, you know, the worst-case scenario. But now, unfortunately, due to current events, people really have a much better understanding of that. It's really unfortunate that it happened to have been that way. So after I got sick, I was in a coma for two and a half months, woke up, and um, that's a whole story in itself. But I uh, died a couple of times in that process, learned how to walk again, learned how to breathe again. I was in the hospital for six months doing that. Then I went to uh, uh, inpatient therapy for two months, started to wean off oxygen, but I was on supplemental oxygen for, was it, uh, at least two years, if not three years. I mean, time is really, you know, going by so quickly, you start to lose track of that. So what happened was after, when I was extremely sick, my friends would try to get me out of the house, and it was a whole mission in the beginning just to take me put in a wheelchair, uh, making sure we had enough oxygen tanks, and they would bring me to weddings and just to my friends' weddings, and it was nothing, nothing too crazy, just like anybody else going. It was a bigger deal because it was very hard to do, just like somebody's grandfather if they were coming in a wheelchair with an aide, just like anybody else. But that that was that's the way it started. I mean, that's that's the beginning of it. I grew up. Regular life, loved sports, loved to have a good time. I was actually pretty athletic back in the day. I mean, some of my friends might challenge that, but I definitely uh, was pretty decent. Um, just a regular guy. I was nothing special, nothing out of the ordinary. I like to sing. I like to have a good time. 
Um, always open to new experiences that I got from my parents, but I just loved having a good time. I, I really don't think I was anything special, nor I don't think anybody else would have thought I was anything special. And I think most of us, we, unless you're extraordinary in some, you're really smart or an overachiever in some area, most of the time, what I've seen in my life is when people are hit with a challenge, that's when it, when you, you shine or that's when it breaks you. So once you're going down a regular road and you hit that bump, what do you do when that bump hits? Because right. life, we don't, we don't get to decide the circumstances. We, go, we get to decide the reaction to the circumstance. And I was lucky, and I, I will say that the two most important things that I've gotten from the hospital and from, and from being sick was friends and family the appreciation for them. I see, I think a lot of people now with what's going on, especially with the quarantine, I think that now people are finally realizing, and it's very unfortunate that it takes tragedy or Mm -hmm. in this case, an epidemic for people to really appreciate that. That's really true. May I ask how old you were when this all started? Like when your life, you know, changed? So I, I just turned 21. My birthday's at the end of December and uh, I, I was 21 now. I'm 26. Um, wow. So it, it's been it's been a fun it's been a fun run. Definitely a very interesting time to get sick. Uh, it's something I reflect on from time to time. How I was lucky that you know there was a guy that had something similar to me that used to come visit me, and when he got sick, he had a wife and a bunch of kids, and it's just a whole different ball game. And I, I'm lucky that I wasn't a child, but I wasn't. You know, somebody that had a tremendous amount of responsibility on my plate where after, you know, when I was able to start getting better, I was really able to focus on myself and not have those distractions of, you know, worrying about a family, even though I, I wouldn't have been able to necessarily take care of them. Um, was there like a change, like a changing point when you were sick and then you were getting better? Did you feel like you were even emotionally like in a better place and not only physically, like your everything, you were just like a different person or you felt like, like, how did you feel? So it's a great question. I think it's a very gradual process. I don't think that it, you know, there's everything happens overnight. There are aha moments, that's for sure, um, when things really changed. But I, I would say I, I'm lucky in the sense where, you know, in 12th grade, I volunteered with the chaplain and I used to go to, you know, burials of people that didn't really have family or I used to go to um, nursing homes to visit people in Israel. I spent time with different organizations, used to go to the hospital and, mm-hmm. you know, seeing sick people. And I would definitely say that that really contributed. I would suggest every teenager do that because as a teenager, you're generally quarreling with that selfish aspect. You know, as a kid, you, you get everything fed to you. And as a teenager, you start to learn that there's a real world out there that you actually have to grow up and do things yourself. So I think it's very important for teenagers in general, girls and boys, to give back. And to do that is one of the best ways is when, you know, when you do things for people that are much less fortunate. So in Israel is when things really, when I used to go to, you know, the cancer wards and used to see people that were terminally ill. And that gave me the foresight to realize that when I woke up, I would, I, I didn't realize this toll that happened, but once I was very sick, I realized that, and this was a very hard thing to come to terms with, but that there was no option. You had no choice. Either you get better 
or you're going to die giving up. And since giving up was an option, no matter what that cost was. And let me tell you, you don't want to have to learn how to walk again or breathe again. It's from the hardest things a person could do. A lot of people now are getting off ventilators from a coma, and they were only on it usually for a week or two, three at tops. I was on it for over two and a half months. That means that you don't know how to breathe anymore, and your body just gets so used to, you know, machine doing it for you. I would say it's next to impossible to get off a trach of that long. You know, it's something that you have to push to the nth degree, and I would say that the only way I was able to do it is because of my family. I mean, if they didn't push me in those hard times, I would never have gone. And I think that now more than ever, and I keep, you know, I keep circling back to this, sorry to be repetitive, but Mm -hmm. I think people have to realize how important family is because it takes, you know, it really takes us to get to such a desperate place to really, really appreciate our family. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, just to segue into the question, I'm sorry I didn't really fully answer that before, but with the weddings, what happened was is that, to me, I fought so hard to, you know, stay alive, you know, and keep on going. And I ended up, you know, hanging out once I got a little better with a couple of people that were always negative. And I was thinking to myself, I fought this hard to just hang out with people who are just going to be negative. It doesn't make any sense. It's not what that was all about. And I started going to weddings, and I, 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 find, I find it mind-boggling that people are constantly trying to have excuses not to show up. To I'm not even talking about random weddings. I'm talking about your, your friends or a relative. People are constantly giving excuses why they can only stay for 10 minutes. And I get it. People have good excuses. You know, if you have a family, you got responsibility. I understand that. But people should be giving reasons why to go to weddings, not why not. And and it's it's to me it's fairly simple. People in life, they want to enjoy themselves. And if you think about it, in the entire world of experience, what's the most positive place a person could go to? There's no more positive place than a wedding. I've not found, I thank God, have been able to have many, many experiences in some incredible places, Shabbos being one of them. But, you know, there's nothing more incredible about a wedding. Good food, good people, good music, and just a couple that's radiant. And to me, that I, I can't think of why not. I mean, I could have gone to, I, I haven't really fully counted, could be five weddings sometimes in a night. It could be Whoa. including bar mitzvah, shever, brachas. But you push yourself to do things that put you in a good place. And if I'm going to be surrounding myself with people, I want to be surrounding myself with people in a good place versus, I always say, rather be at a wedding than a funeral, right? And we all have to do that. We all have to go to funerals. But put yourself in a place where you're going to be positive, where there's positivity around you, where it's enjoyable to be around mm-hmm. And if you have that, you, you just live a better life. It's, it's a more enjoyable. It's not that I am necessarily a positive person. I'm around positivity. So by osmosis, it's just, it's just going to be contagious. It's literally, you're, you're just around happiness, right? If you're always around happiness, you're going to be happy. If you're around negative people or negativity, you're going to be negative. This world, there are so many people who like are hating others and, you know, putting people down. But what you're doing, you're bringing light into the world. You're bringing positivity in the world. And I could just imagine, like, these brides and these grooms, when you go to their weddings, you, you definitely, like, light up their entire night. 
because you go and you just make them so happy. I think we all do. I don't. I don't think I'm anything special. I don't think I'm any better than anybody else. I think that we all have that ability, and if we only reserve it for specific people, they're the ones that do it. Or they're the ones we're limiting ourselves. Everybody has that opportunity to make somebody else happy. It could be at a wedding. It could be anywhere. We all have opportunities, especially in this time. You know, I've heard many different speeches over Zoom about different rabbis speaking, giving tips. It's so simple to pick up a phone and call somebody else. It's literally, things became so simple, yet so hard. It's unbelievable. We got everything on our phone. We got technology. We could talk to anybody in the world. Nothing's invincible. Nothing's too much. But we became so difficult, and and it's on ourselves. And it's, it's a scary concept. To me, it's a scary concept. And after we pass away, and God's going to say, How'd you make this world a better place? What'd you do? And you're going to be like, oh, I was too busy. I was depressed. This person looked at me the wrong way. You know, I was too busy watching TV. You had so much ability. Why didn't you use it? And I think it's self-awareness and self-confidence. If we only understood our self-worth and understood that we have the ability and we don't have to compare ourselves to other individuals, us ourselves, we have ability. If we didn't have ability, we, weren't, we wouldn't be here. Every single person, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be sitting on a hospital bed. You have ability. You can inspire people. You could help people. Everybody could do it in their own way, and we see it. I mean, social media, if it's taught us anything, it's that people could inspire each other. The power that one person has, could, you know, something could go viral. You know, people didn't realize that 150 years ago. Today, a regular person, no matter where they are, they could be sitting in their bedroom, they come up with a good line, that thing can go viral mm-hmm. and be posted everywhere. It's amazing. So just, like, listen and, like, listen to you talk. It's incredible. Now, was it hard for you, like, to go to the first wedding, like, to just go and, like, when your friends, you're saying they tried getting you out of the house? Like, how was that experience for you? <laughs> You'd have to ask them. It was probably more terrifying for them than for me. I was probably just happy to get out. It definitely wasn't easy. I mean, I can't say I have the easiest life. I don't think anybody has an easy life. We all have challenges. No matter where you are on the spectrum, you have challenges. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, again, we probably wouldn't be alive. It was very difficult. I, I used to throw up. I, you know, when I, when, I, when I became very active, my lungs... For me, active was just even walking out of the house, you know, so my lungs would start racing and I, you know, it's not a regular anxiety attack like people that have severe anxiety, but in a sense, it looked that way because it would trigger my lungs and I used to throw up a lot and my friend would have to clean it out and make sure that I was breathing enough. And then if I even danced for a little bit, it was, it was, it wasn't an easy ride, but like anything else, you got to push through it and you get to a place, you know? where you're able to really, you know, go out into the real world and be a part of regular society. And I owe my friends and my family and a lot of hard work, you know. I went to therapy for years, PT mm. and OT, and, and and I'm sure some of your listeners have done the same thing, you know. I'm not the only one. I'm really, I really don't consider it that it's me. I've learned so much from many other sick individuals, whether it be a kid's courage or Cam Simcha, or Ms. Amer, uh, or just going to the hospital to visit other sick people, they've given me much more than I've given them. Wow. Now you are a counselor at Kids of Courage? 
right? So I was a counselor in 2012 in kindergarten. That was my, uh, after 12th grade. I was 18. I was a counselor. And then I came back as a camper, and then I came back as a counselor. So I was a counselor for one year, camper for three years, and then I now I'm a counselor for two years. Or is it three years? I'm I'm starting to lose count. So was there like a difference, like transitioning from being a counselor to a camper, or was it pretty much the same, like, because you already knew everybody, like you were already friendly with the people at the camp? So it was a big gap. It was a different gap. I came back a couple years later. Um, I it, The camp was definitely very different. I got extremely lucky that my roommate from 12th grade was my counselor, um, somebody I'm extremely close to, one of my best friends to this day, and he was my counselor, and he was just truly incredible. I mean, he was the best thing. I always say God really puts the right people in your life at the right time. And mm-hmm. You just have to recognize it. You just have to look at the lenses to see that. And he and his whole family was just so incredible to me. They really, really did everything for me, even ahead of what I would have anticipated. So he was my counselor, and he, to a certain extent, nurtured me back. And then, yeah, I got I got the privilege of coming back and being counselor. And that, that in itself was an incredible experience, extremely rewarding. And I and hope that all the campers come back as counselors. Was it oh, different the first time around to being a counselor and the second time being around? Oh, oh, oh for sure. For sure. There's, there's, it's night and day, night and day. I came as a counselor, and, you know, at the end of 12th grade, I wanted to have a good time, give, a cam- give my camper a good time. I had no perspective. I had no understanding, no depth to it. And also, I was much younger. I was, uh, I was an 18-year-old kid. I came back, you know, years later. I was mm-hmm. already been a camper, understood the other side, you know, even though everybody goes through a different situation, when you really struggle, you could tap into somebody else's struggle. You don't have to have the exact same struggle. It's not about necessarily comparing notes. A lot of people say, I know what you're going through. You don't know what they're going through, but you have an idea. I, I always you try to be in their pain with them. To, so, I, you know, as you mature, you, you're able to have that. I, I, my camper unfortunately passed away this past year, but um, he had muscular dystrophy. He was one of the oldest in the world. And I was the only counselor he had that understood the concept of not being able to move. I wow. wasn't able to move for a little while. So I was the only, so when you have that, when you have that perspective, it changes things. It does. There's, there's, there's no question about it. So. Wow. So can I ask you a question? Listen, if it's too personal, you don't have to answer it. But I know you said that you were um, in a coma for like two and a half months. When you got out of a coma, did you know that you had been in a coma? Did you know that you got sick when you woke up? Like, what were you feeling? Did you know what was going on? No, so I, you, you don't. And uh, nobody does. I mean, look, I have to differentiate. There's two types of comas. There's an induced coma and then and then one that you fall into. So I was in an induced coma, which it's called medical, I'm sorry, medical induced coma, where the hospital puts you into it for it could be a number of reasons. For me, um, they needed to get my lungs arrest. I had to be on something called ECMO, which is like a lung heart machine outside the body. Also, another thing that they're using now uh, became pretty prevalent. But mm-hmm. I was an induced coma, so you don't know anything. You're on many sedatives. You're on something called Verset, which makes you forget. If somebody falls into a coma, then sometimes they have stories. They say they remember people call hallucination it, that uh, that's a different ball game i i didn't 
And it takes around a week to wake up where they slowly reduce the medicine that's putting you to sleep. And it ta- even when you wake up, you're on so many painkillers and, and so many drugs that you don't, you have no idea what's going on. And they slowly, they slowly, uh, you know, would tell me things. And it, would, it took a long time for me to realize how sick I was. It, it would say, I would say even months till I really fully grasped what was going on. I'll just tell you a quick story just to give you a little perspective. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of your listeners, maybe if they were sick or they know somebody was sick, they've had similar experiences. So a couple of days after I woke up, um, I'm sitting in my bed and remember I can't move at all. I can't hardly even move my, my head and let alone my eyes. The only thing, I mean, I was able to hear and I would say just like a dog that has, because its eyesight is not so great, your sense of smell is much better. For me, my brain was working overdrive. So my mother comes in with a bunch of doctors and they're going, they're ecstatic. They're looking at the side of my bed and I understood that it was, they were looking at my urine and they were going crazy. I was thinking to myself, these people are crazy. Like what's wrong with them? Like why are they making such a big fuss about urine? And my mother saw my face and she came over to me and she said you should, that I was just with the nephrologist and a day ago you couldn't pee at all. You were on dialysis. You couldn't, we thought your kidneys would never work again. And my liver and kidneys had failed. And the fact that you were able to start paying again was like the biggest deal, even though they were like measuring it. It was, it was a big deal. And I'm like, these people are crazy, but that just shows you, like, I had no idea what had been going on. Um, I had no idea how sick I was, where it was. People ask me if, if it bothered me. I, I just said I missed the Super Bowl, but you know, I, it's like you hibernated for, for a little bit of time. I went into hospital thinking I was leaving the next day. No questions asked. I had chest pain. I that's all actually brought me. My father came, um, went to the hospital. They put me on regular antibiotics. They said they they would just monitor me, and then the pain started getting worse and worse. And I actually I was the one that asked them to put me out originally because I was just in overwhelming amounts of pain. It was it was like too much for me to handle. So I was pleading with the doctor. And um, I remember she's like, okay, whatever, they came over. And, and the way I described that, it was like a dentist-level sedation. It was a very low level. And that, uh, that was around 6 o'clock. At around 10 o'clock, they told my father to go home. Um, we're just going to monitor him. Everything should be fine. You'll come back in the morning. And in the middle of the night is when just everything went from bad to worse in, in, in a matter of very short period of time. I don't, I don't know, even know all the specifics, but... From what I've been told, it was really quick, and there was very little they could do so quickly. They were trying to salvage everything and working, you know, so quickly. They 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 obviously called the code one, and they were just going nuts. A code one is generally when somebody's heart stops. I mean, it's before that, but and if you have some doctors, they could explain it more technical. But it basically means this is this is very serious. Oh my god! So all the doctors and nurses, if you ever been to hospital and you see. A doctor's and nurses start right. That's usually a code one, cardiac arrest or something to that nature. So that's what happened. And actually, that hospital, that was at Jersey Shore, um, which is actually a pretty good trauma center. And they they basically gave up on me. They were working on me. They couldn't do anything. And there was a, a nurse there that convinced them to transfer me to a different hospital where they placed me on ECMO. And subsequently, the ECMO saved my life. 
at the time, I was on ECMO for one of the longest in the world, over seven weeks, which was, just to give you perspective, after two weeks, you either died or you were off of it. It's, it's a last resort. And oh at the time, seven weeks was unheard of. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, it's either used as a lung or heart machine outside the body. It's extremely complex machine to run, but it, essentially what it does is it just gives your lung or heart a break and does the work for it, and they try to give the, you know, the body a rest and to obviously win you back on. But it, it, you're, in order to go on to ECMO, it, it, you have to be so sick that a lot of times it doesn't work. Now, thank God, they're already years later, they're already, they've been tweaking it for a while, and they're, it started with in the neonatal units, and now it's becoming much more prevalent for adults. So where are you holding now? So I, I've been pretty much gone back to real life. I still have my lungs aren't up to par, I would say. I have a lot of uh, shortness of breath. Um, my lungs are, you know, a regular healthy person's, but um, regular in the sense where if you met me in the middle of a crowd, you wouldn't know the difference. You wouldn't know anything. Um, but if you, I can't really run. I that that's been an issue. Um, anything with exertion is, is definitely more difficult for me. But I learned I learned how to compensate after many years. And just to give you, I, I died four times. The hospital didn't think I was making it out. They didn't think I was making it. I mean, the only thing that you would, if you didn't know who I was, you would see a trach scar, you know, you'd see some, like, scars around my neck, which that's a whole story in itself. I don't know if you have time for that now. Yeah. But, uh, you, wait, you died four uh, times, you're saying, in the hospital? Yeah. I, to be honest, I don't fully know what that means, Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, my father told me that years later. Um, oh. But I, I didn't even know. I mean, I, I was so sick for so long, it, it made sense that you, you had moments where it was over. Mm-hmm. What does that fully mean? I, I can't answer. You didn't have, like, a life-and-death experience, though? No, not when you're, not when you're induced. I mean, I, like, you, you, you're on so many high drugs afterwards, you definitely hallucinate a little bit. But no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any, like, I didn't see God or anything. Or, right. Well, you know. Wow, oh, my gosh. So before you got sick, like you were a regular kid, you had no medical problem at all, right? Regular healthy kid, yeah. Look, uh, people get sick all the time, you know, when you see this now, especially with what's going on in today's day and age. And I, the way to describe it, I was a worst case scenario. I was a, literally a fluke. You know, you have 99.9999% of the time it's fine and a 0.001% chance and, and and you know what? I'll tell you this much. Like I'm so happy that, and it happened to me because, I you know it might be a dangerous path to go on. But I sometimes think about what life would have been if I never got sick. And I, I you go back to the happiness. I, I think I'm a lot happier now with losing. You know, with losing certain things and you know having to go through all that pain. It made me who I am. I, how could I complain? How could I? you know, compare that to something that I probably would never have had that experience. The friendships I made, you know, the people that I've been able to be involved with, that's only happened because I've gone sick. So that, you know, it does, that doesn't bother me in that sense. And I've been lucky. I just, I've been very fortunate to just have incredible people around me. It's it's really not me. It's, It's the people that you're associated with. It's your friends. They're the ones who, who give it to you. And of course, your family, of course. 
and you're able to appreciate like actual human interaction, which like most people these days are like on their phones and just, you know, busy with other things. They don't even realize the people around them, but you really appreciate everybody. You know, who's been there for you, you know, who, you know, cares for you and you know, who will be there for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so just, just to go back to the hospital days. So I'm in the hospital and I had some, I don't know if some of your listeners are familiar with the bed sore. A bed sore is uh, usually, it could be anywhere on the body, but usually it's most prevalent on the bottom, right on top of your tailbone. Okay. And what happens is, is that when you're sitting for so long in one place, your body just starts to separate the skin. And what had it happened to me was the bed sore was so bad, it went into my bone. That's how deep it was, which is extraordinarily painful. It's horrendous. And it wasn't closing. And in the hospital, they're extremely worried about infection. So they, at a certain point, if it didn't close, they're going to have to do something about it. And that day came. So the surgeon came in to me. And he says, he comes and he took a look at it. And he said, if it doesn't close by this amount of time, we're going to have to do surgery and put it together. You know, you know, actually physically put it together. So as he's leaving, he takes one more look at me. And he's like, sees all my scars around my neck and he's like, you know, we could do something about it. We could shave it off. There's many different techniques that plastic surgery uses to, uh, to eliminate scars. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was really taken aback by my mind started racing. I'm like, no, like, and and it's funny the way you think you're like, would my girlfriend like it? Would my wife like, like, and, Mm -hmm. and you're like, your mind goes into overdrive. Like, what would I do? What would they say? I wasn't so concerned about what regular people thought, but it's something of significance to me. I I was really, you know, thinking about that. So at that point I was learning how to walk again and I walk around the ward. Now I was too weak to walk around it fully. So I'd stop off in different people's rooms. So I happened to have been at that point, I was on the step down unit for transplants. So people that had transplants, they were recovering so that was the floor. And I was the youngest by far. I mean, most people were there were ex-smokers for 40, 50 years, you know, and, and up. I mean, you had probably 70, 80-year-olds there as well. So there was this one Army veteran that I used to go, you know, stop in the off in his room, and he had a double heart transplant. And I used to sit in his room, and we, you know, we'd complain about how bad the food was and how much of a jail. And, you know, and then in the middle, I turned to him, and I said, you know, I, I can't remember his name, but he taught me one of the most important lessons in my life. And maybe it had to be that way that I don't remember his name. But he, I said to him, I was like, the doctor said this and about my scars. Like, what do you think I should do? And he turned to me. He's like, Ben, he's like, the scars of honor. And he said it in such a deep, powerful way. And, wow. and it was the most, one of the most mind-blowing experiences for me. And, you know, I translate that. For me, of course, it was... And I realized this, like, eventually I'd be off the oxygen. All I would have to look at is my scars. That would be what I would be able to remember. He had a long, you know, scar straight down his chest from double heart transplants. But I think every, in that sense, I think that's what people could learn from a guy like that. I mean, he was saying it, it could be emotional, it could be physical scars. It doesn't matter what your scars are. Be proud of them because that's what makes you who you are. It's the scars. It's the roughness. It's that toughness. It's the resilience of the struggle that makes you who you are. People learn that out of sports. People learn that out of business. People can learn it from a guy that had a double heart transplant, a guy who was just a regular Army veteran. I don't think he would consider himself anything special at all. 
he taught me one of the most, uh, to me, it's, it, he was so mindful of it. It was one of the most powerful experiences that I've got. And I try to live my life that way, you know, to never be ashamed of what you went through, to never, ever be ashamed. <laughs> Are you close with anybody that you met at the hospital? A lot of the doctors, it, it's hard with them that, that the way that they have their relationships, you know, it, 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 it's complicated with them. I, I go back to, I would say the most important thing is to go back and visit and to show them who you are and who you've become. To that, that visual for them to see that they work so hard on you when you're walking through the halls coming into the, yeah. the hospital, whether it be the ICU or anything else, that I think is very rewarding for them. In general, to keep up, it's hard because I, I send them pictures from time to time, but doctors have to be able to separate the emotional and work. And it's a very hard thing for people in that profession because it, it, how do you have that balance? So you don't you don't want to encroach on them too much, but I, I think once in a while it's good. The doctors, like, talking about doctors, when you woke up, they were probably like, wow, like that was a miracle. Were they in awe when they saw that you woke up and that you were moving around? I, I would have to ask my mother more that. She would probably remember. I, I, I'm sure they were. I'm sure. they. I know they were shocked. They didn't, they didn't. They definitely gave up at some point. Um, it wasn't an overnight thing. We didn't go from in a coma to like just getting up, snap a finger. It was a gradual process. Right. So when that happens, it takes more time. But yeah, they were definitely they all even you know. And it's, I had a couple of non-religious doctors. I had an Indian doctor. They all knew it was God. They all knew as much as they they know how much work they put in. They knew that that it was, especially when you're dealing with a religious Jew. It's mm-hmm. they they were really able to see that. And for them, it was the biggest kiddush Hashem I think was is that they saw my family rail behind. They were rallying behind me the whole time. They never left me for one minute. I always had 24 hour coverage, which I think is a very very important thing, so that somebody could advocate on behalf of the mm-hmm. patient. And and that that to them realized like. You value life. There were plenty of times. I know of a couple. I'm sure it happened a couple of times, but they want to pull the plug on me. And my parents said, absolutely not. And mm-hmm. when you see people that really value life, and I think as a Jews, this is part of what we have to show the rest of the world, especially in times like this, how much life means to us and how much we actually value it. And if we truly value it, they'll see that. You know, when you don't value your life, when you do things that are are detrimental to your life in, in any area, you're devaluing it and people will see that. So I, I think that in time like that where, you know, my parents really fought for me to be alive, I would be dead if, you know, if it were up to them, they would have pulled it. And I don't blame the doctors. You know, they put in a tremendous amount of work and for them, they, they're done, you know. And my parents said no. And, and that's why I'm here today talking to you. It just shows like how much fight someone has inside of them. Just from, from hearing your story. Now, after you left the hospital and you got better, how did you, like, have the, I don't know if the word is cheshek or push to say, okay, I'm going to go make something of myself. I'm going to go do something out in the world. Like, you just went through all that, and now you're like, you must have been exhausted. So how did you have that push to say, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to make people happy. So it's definitely my, my family and friends. I mean, they're obviously the ones that push me the most. And I, I beg everybody to really value that because for their own selves, they have to be able to have that ability to be ha- to have people that push them, especially when they want to give up. There were definitely times that I wanted to throw in the towel. My mother or my father or my aunts, my uncles, 
of my friends said absolutely not and they pushed me and they pushed me but I also I was lucky like I said earlier I was given that perspective that foresight to see that I, I didn't have the ability I didn't have that option to, to throw in the to really throw in the towel. So I understood that from a logical perspective, but sometimes you need your friends and family to actually give you that, that, that push, that really, that big push. Even, even sometimes when you understand something conceptually, you still need that physical push. And, and I, I, I can never be lucky enough to have the friends and family I have. They, they, they've really pushed me and, and they never took no for an answer. They never, let me give up and eventually you start propelling and eventually you're able to get your own steam and do that to other people and that's how the world goes around right we have to take what we were given and give that to other people that may be going through a tough time they never let you give up so they were like hard on you usually you would think that oh they say okay you don't want to don't do this but they were hard on you to make sure that you get better my parents are incredible about giving space and you know, let it take a, a natural course. But overall, yeah, generally they were, I knew that I would have to get back on my feet. They, they made that very clear. They were, they were, you know, more subtle about it. They didn't necessarily verbalize it, but with an action, uh, it, it was a, it was a gradual process. Again, when somebody's sick, you can't do things overnight. You know, right. it, it takes, it takes a real toll on you, you know, psychologically also. It's not something that, you could just snap out of and I don't, I don't want people to, I may make it sound very simplified, but for some of your listeners that may be going through either, you know, whether it's trauma, there's some physical illness or, you know, psychological illness, mental illness, anything like mm-hmm. it's, it's not an, a snap of a finger can better. It's, it's putting in that work every moment. And people like to say day by day, when it comes to breathing and oxygen, it's moment by moment. You only have this moment. And going back to my counselor, and he told me something. This is one of my best friends. He told me something so profound. He said, oxygen is everywhere around us, right? It's free. You could just breathe in the air, yet you can never get enough of it. You only have it for that moment. So it's the same thing with any illness or any struggle. You have to just deal with the moment in front of you. You take one step in front of the next. And if it's a, that's for, let's say, physical illness, for a psychological or or some mental illness, you got to work on what you have right in front of you. Don't shoot down 10 years down the line. It's not the time for that type of foresight. You're not running a major company and you don't have to show the vision to your board. Right now, you have what you have in front of you. Make the best of what you have now. And And that's what I have to do. And it's a gradual process. I can't say that I've, you know, conquered everything. I still have a lot of work to put in. But it's, it's just you go to sleep at night saying, I had a great day. I accomplished. It may not have been everything I wanted to. I have tomorrow for that. But I know I put in my time. And if you think you made mistakes, so the next day you try to fix them. Don't beat yourself up too much because then you'll never do anything. That's super powerful. Mm-hmm. Now, before we go, I just want to ask you a question. Like, what do you generally do during your day? Like, I know we see you go to weddings at night, but what do you do during your day? <laughs> I like to keep it to weddings at night. Um, oh. <laughs> so I work in investments. I, I, I was lucky that I got to meet some pretty amazing people in, in the workplace, and I got into the financial sector. And, uh, you know, whether bringing money to the table or just working on nice ideas, whether it comes to the technology industry or oil, 
I, I would I would keep it at that. I don't want to get too specific on that right now, but uh, I, I I raise capital, which right now is uh, not very active. I would say so. Mm-hmm. I get to spend time on other things right now, but that's oh, what that's I generally good. do. Right. I was well, I was I was wondering on that. I was like, hey, he goes to weddings, but does he have a day job? Like, what does he do during the day? <laughs> Well, I would say my, the wedding is my office because that's where I work on deals a lot. So uh-huh. you get to meet people, you you get a you know a pipeline, you get a flow of deals, you meet people that want to invest. There's a lot of that in between stuff, and you a wedding is actually the perfect place to uh, meet people. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I'm lucky in that way that I'm able to do that, and it's not a nine to five, and it's something I enjoy. I like I like. I want everybody to make money, so it's not just about me. It's not just about the investor. It's not just about the company. It's about everybody being able to make money. So I, right. I definitely enjoy that, and I get to see in the startup world, I get to see some, you know, pretty fascinating concepts, and you you want to see you want to see it through. So, is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? Like any last bit of inspiration? I'll just say something I I said to some other friends of mine, and something that. It's not it's not my idea, and it's something that's been going around a lot, but I, maybe some of your listeners could take something from this, and it's something that I try to live my life by. Uh, we're living in, you know, at the time of Spira now, where uh, 24,000 tell me the before Akiva passed away, and it, 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 there's a many, many different things to learn from them and from this time period in general, but there's something that I that really, you know, shook me to the core, and that is that we, we, one of the reasons why they passed away, or the main reason they passed away, is because they didn't respect one another. And, you know, the person that told me, I'm not even sure where I heard this originally, and, and, and what the person said over was that, how's it possible, or Kiva's motto was, that you have to love your fellow like you love yourself. So how's it possible that his own, you know, disciples didn't get that? I mean, that, that was his main motto. Everybody understands the main motto. And what he said, what he said over, and I think this was brilliant, was it's not that they didn't respect one another. They did when they agreed with them. But when they didn't agree with them, they just totally avoided or put it down or didn't respect when somebody had a different opinion than them. And I think that's a very important thing. We live in a world that's extremely diverse. You know, people have very, very different opinions. You know, the political world is on is completely polarized. If we take that time now to reflect upon maybe somebody has a different view that I don't agree with, but I'll just respect them for it, and maybe I'll even listen to what they have to say, you may learn a lot from that person. And I think that... Maybe if we start doing that, uh, I'm not some big rabbi that will say, you know, Mashiach will come from this. I I have no idea. But I think we'll make the world a much better place. And maybe if we do make the world a better place, it would make it easier for Mashiach to come. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for sitting down um, with me. It was really, you're you're such an inspiring person. Like, I just want to hear more. I I don't think it's, I think everybody has incredible attributes i think you know everybody's got something every single person but it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference for sure yeah that should be on a t-shirt maybe i'll put it on a t-shirt and send it to you (laughs) you should wear it too yeah i'll make a few i'll make a few for the hebrew hit show and uh, maybe that'll be my motto 
Well, thank I you so much. It. It's been a pleasure sitting down with you. And um, you just listened to Ben Taplin here on Hebrew Hits. That was Ben Taplin on Hebrew Hits. Thank you so much, Ben Taplin, for being here on the show tonight. Remember to come back next week and go follow us on Instagram at Hebrew underscore hits. And you can listen to Hebrew Hits on all your favorite streaming apps, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Podcasts, and much, 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 much more. We'll see you back next week.